A two brute, then fall Caesar for you Shakespeare fans out there, because you know what? It is Tuesday, March 15th. The Ides of March. Beware, folks. There's a lot going on. You are watching Market Call. It is 1 p.m. Eastern Time. It is Tuesday, as I mentioned. We're putting 30 minutes up on the clock. I'm Guy Adami. Typically, I'm joined by Dan Nathan, but no, 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 no. You got my on-the-tape compañero, Danny Moses. You may also know him from The Big Chill. And before we get into it, Danny, sorry to hear about William Hurt. I'm sure I know you guys were close. You got really, you know, when you made that movie together. Anyway, today's Market Call is brought to you by CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. Of course, open exchange, Danny, because as you've come to learn, they manage the virtual meetings that matter for the top companies around the world. Big show coming up. A lot of market volatility across all asset classes. Oh, and AMC, you going to the movies this weekend? Well, maybe they'll give you a gold bar. I don't know. But first, Danny, Fed two-day meeting kicking off today. Inflation is rampant. How are you, by the way, Danny Moses? I'm good. It's always tough to follow your opening guy in any capacity, but it's great to be here. Sorry you couldn't be with Dan Nathan, but I'm happy to be here in his place. So No, I think today's a perfect day to have you. I mean, there's so many things going on. Obviously, as we speak right now, the market's staging a bit of a rally, but some of the cross currents. And I will tell you, you know, if you listen on the tape, which you should, by the way, folks, I'm sure most of you do. Danny was way ahead of this. Mostly everything that's going on, Danny has forecast. And he said something last week, I think it was last week, that actually startled me. You said you've gone from being bearish to being scared. And I understand exactly what you're saying, because we're seeing things across that asset classes that I don't care who you are. Nobody's ever seen before, Danny. Yeah, the asset classes, you know, there's a lot to choose from. And you can't really hide in bonds, right? Those are going down with yields going up. You can't really hide in stocks. Those are going down. You can pick some decent dividend paying stocks, but you're not catching up with inflation. You can go into oil and have volatility come at you from all 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 angles, gold or any of it. So it's just it's just a tough time right now. And so I don't think it's going to get much easier. And so, yes, the answer is scared in the sense of where do you park your money? And if you're in cash, which obviously I would never recommend, you're potentially losing 15, 16% a annualized number right now, just being in cash, given where inflation is running. So, well, you know, it's interesting. No, it's interesting you say that because, you know, people look at me cross-eyed and you're talking about 15% and you're right. I mean, core inflation or whatever they choose to measure it, CPI 7.9% last reading. But if they were to measure inflation the way they did, I want to say 33 years ago, the proper way, real inflation in this country is probably either side of 15%, which means that we are, we are at negative yields that we haven't seen maybe in the history of this country, which also means, Danny, and I'm curious as to your thoughts, I mean, you can talk about the Fed, you know, pivoting again off their pivot, but they're about three and a half years legit behind the curve. I would say, listen, since the time around the big short, right, in 2007, 8, 9, when we came out of this, we've only known one thing. Fed has your back, quantitative easing. Yes, time to time, the Fed tries to raise rates. Look what happens. Fed tries to pull out of the QE. Look what happens. They started to taper several years ago. Look what happened. Now we're faced with a true reality of the Fed has no choice but to go. And to be fair, I don't think they care about the stock market anymore for the first time. And whether that's just because inflation's running so rampant, they can't afford to, whether it's because three Fed governors have left because of trading ahead of some of their policymaking decisions, it's just not that important now. So 
we're seeing a sea change occur. And, you know, listen, it was really tough to manage active money from 2010 to 2021 when just the Fed just pumps liquidity. Mm-hmm. And I'll add, Guy, that, that COVID obviously brought so many more trillions of dollars in both on the balance sheet and in the form of PPP loans and stimulus checks. That was the icing on the cake or the cherry on top, so to speak, of what really put us in this full inflation mode. So when the Fed goes tomorrow to maintain any shred of credibility, they're going to have to be very hawkish. Yeah. And quickly, I just want to point out, we're looking at the CME FedWatch tool. I mean, basically, we're at 100% probability for a 25 to a 50%, 25 point to a 50 point hike. I think we all agree. I don't think there was ever a chance, in my opinion, that 50 points was on the table, although, quite frankly, it should have been. I think we all realize that 25 is probably reasonable. The 50 to 75 point, obviously less than 2% chance, but this is just important to watch. This is something we've watched all along, but please continue, Danny. Yeah, no, let me just say, so that's 25. So right right now we're in the zero to 25 basis point range. This is saying that the 98%, 99% probability will be in the 25 to 50, which for people understand that's just one quarter point increase. Above that, to your point, guy, 50 to 75, which until a couple of weeks ago, until Powell got in front of the Senate and said, no, I'm going to go 25, that dropped. What's still shocking to me, if you were to change this chart to 2022, we're still at seven rate hikes. And that tells you right now that the belief is the Fed doesn't care about the stock market. And I think that's important. And I'm not, I'm saying, I think that's a good thing that they don't care about the stock market. But every day that goes by, we're getting closer and closer to the reality of managing money in this environment without the Fed having your back. And that's going to, I think, going to come into clear focus tomorrow. So tomorrow you also get something called the dot plot, mm-hmm. which is like a forecast of 18 different people at the Fed. And I don't think, I think there's three missing right now and Bullard abstains from it. So maybe we'll get 14 dots tomorrow. And the last meeting that we had only had three rate hikes in 22 and three rate hikes in 23. So it's obviously going to look very different. And the one thing I'll say, Guy, what is the one thing we talked about before on our podcast? Could the Fed be dovish at all? Well, everyone expects them to be full hawkish. I truly believe that there will be no qualitative tightening. I believe that the reinvestments of the runoffs will continue. So people out there that understand, we have so much debt on the U.S. balance sheet, right? It's, it's, it's north of $30 trillion at this point. The average duration of that debt is around five or six years. So as you see yields move up on the five, seven, and 10-year, right, that one thing that the Fed has been controlling through QE is buying treasuries. And if you listen to what they said, when they start to run off kind of the portfolio, it's going to be mortgage-backed securities first. So I think they'll keep reinvesting proceeds. They're going to have to keep those yields down because interest payments alone, sorry, guy, to go off on this tangent, are going to create a lot of pain you know, for people and the country in general. It's not a tangent at all. I mean, it's all part and parcel of what's going on. And, you know, they try to solve one problem, they create something else. And this is all there. Again, I want to be clear. I think people know if they've seen me on Fast Money over the years or listen to our podcast, I am no fan of central bankers, specifically our Federal Reserve. And they got themselves into this. But now they're going to start to pull levers left and right, hoping they pull the right ones in the right order. It's just not going to happen. And we're taking a look at the 10-year yield, which I think is really interesting here. Why is it interesting? Because just look at the volatility. And this is a little longer term. But, you know, we could speak to granular some of the moves we've seen over the last month. 10-year yields went north of 2%. Then you saw a flight to quality as the broader market sold off into the bond market, which took yields down below 1.7%. And now here we are back north of about 2.1%. Bond volatility is at historic levels by any measurement you want to put out there. And you're talking about what should be, again, Danny, we've talked about this, the most liquid security asset, whatever you want to call it, on the face of the planet. Yet it's trading like a $5 billion biotech stock. 
That is really problematic. What does it speak to? The bond market doesn't know what to make of any of this, and the Fed's lost control of the back end of the curve. Yeah, I'm having trouble reconciling 10-year yields. Not that they shouldn't be higher. I think if they were fair value right now, they'd be north of 6%, maybe even mm-hmm. 7%. And two-year yields should already be at 35 or 4% based upon kind of where the Fed is going to go since it's shorter duration there. But the problem we have right now is there's so much debt on corporate balance sheets, a little bit, some on consumer balance sheets. We've seen those rise in the last several years. And people have been induced to go out and borrow because rates are so low, whether they're buying a home, whether they're buying a car, whatever. And what we're seeing right now, just this impact from, I would say, the shorter end of the curve, kind of the two, three, and four-year yields moving, is it's having an impact right now on credit. You're seeing deals out in the marketplace. You know, these companies that go out and try to sell pools of mortgages, pools of credit card receivables, auto loan receivables, whatever it might be, it's starting to get it more expensive. And what that means is that the people that are originating these loans have to then raise their prices, which means things get a little bit more expensive. So all of a sudden, credit matters and credit spreads are widening. Credit and fixed income, I don't have to tell you from the days of the big short and the big chill, always, always lead equities. And so people need to pay attention to what is going on in that market. And you've seen a few iterations of companies with either postponed deals in the asset back market or failed deals or more expensive pricing. And so that has a direct impact on equity values. So without getting too deep. yeah. No, look, last summer, you know, we're looking at a 210 spread here. Last summer, nobody was talking about two-year yields. I'll tell you flat out, nobody was talking about them. Why? Because two-year yields were sort of pegged at 25 basis points. They hadn't moved. Two's tens were about 150 basis points, seemingly not a lot going on. And then obviously something changed. Two-year yields, I mean, forget about that. They've gone from 25 basis points to what are they now 175 in a very short less than a year i mean that's a pretty significant move and what we're looking at here is something we've talked about for a while now i know danny you know this i thought two tens would go to 30 basis points in the form of one and a half into two 1.8 into 10 and we actually at one point we were there now they're less than 30 basis points in the form of you know 176 in the twos 212 or something in the tens and you have to ask yourself what is this telling you like what does this chart a lot of people say it's not a big deal blah 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 the the 210 spread doesn't matter inverting of a yield curve doesn't matter it absolutely matters and we're on the precipice of something right now my sense is before fourth of july i think there's a real chance that this thing goes negative what are your thoughts I think we could see an inversion in the two and the 10. The two yields, I think, currently are just above 180, guy. They're changing, obviously, by the second. Where that crosses, I don't know, but I do see it potentially happening in the next several weeks. What would make that happen? I think the reality that the Fed is hawkish, the reality that the economy may indeed be slowing, the reality that the safest place to be in any asset and both sacrifice, you know, inflation margin for yields is the 10-year yield. So I think there will be a flight. This is the area I just mentioned that I'm having a hard time trying to figure out. I know the 10-year yields should be much higher on an absolute basis, but if they hint at any end of QE or they, or they hint that they're going to keep reinvesting proceeds and they push that off, that's when I think we potentially we see, because I think investors are set up short on the bonds right now, thinking they're going to get nothing out of the Fed that's dovish at all, any dovish thing at all. I believe that that will come at the expense of 10-year yields coming down. Then I think we could see the 210 inversion. Happening yeah, and, and, I'll, and I'll add to that, um, if you were to see a market sell-off, once again, if you see another round of, you know, aggressive selling in equities, I think you'll see yields come down in the form of a flight to quality. We got to take a look at gold, and we have a question from one of our viewers. So let's look at the gold chart here, and I think it might answer his question without me doing it. But question, why are gold and silver prices not exploding higher if real interest rates are so negative? We get this all the time. 
I wish I had an answer to that. I don't. Now, you obviously, Danny, saw a glimpse of what could happen in the gold market, you know, the last week and a half, two weeks. I'm pretty big parabolic move to the upside on the back of a number of different things. The unfortunate reality is if you're bullish, we were not able to take out the summer of 2020 highs. And now we're doing, as they say, the back and fill. I don't think it's over by any stretch of the imagination. As a matter of fact, you know, I could give you a scenario where market participants start to look for delivery of physical gold. That's probably for another show. But it, t- it tested that level. It failed at that level. It's basically doing, as I said, a back and fill. What are your thoughts on the gold market? Why isn't it doing better in this environment? First of all, it's had a big move. We don't have to go back to my the podcast where I, I, I won five large from Dan Nathan when I was 1770. And I said the next move will be 1900 before 1700. So it's had a, a pretty big move here. I think with what's gone on with the LME trading nickel and suspending trading there, a lot of this volatility, I think people have taken their books down. So I think some bullish bets may have come off, but I fully expect this thing to rally back, I think well north of 2000. I think as we all know, for the last few years, crypto in general has stolen some of the thunder. Mm-hmm. Right? So if you just think of gold as a 10 to $12 trillion market and crypto was zero and it went to kind of two to 3 trillion, and now it's back, I think under 2 trillion, it stole some of that thunder. So people believe, or so people are using Bitcoin as a proxy potentially for a store of value. But what's happening really interesting is currencies get debased like the ruble across the world and China. They're replacing potentially U.S. Treasury holdings, right, with other things. And maybe maybe oil won't be dominated by dollars soon. Maybe it'll be gold. I mean, people are talking about some trends right now in gold. And to your point, Guy, the physical market, right, there's things that have happened at the Bank of International Settlements, where now if you're a paper holder of gold, just think of the GLD. It requires more expensive to hold those now. It's going to require these paper holders to pay more of a carry to do it. So I think it's more technical right now. And maybe it's feeding on things like this chart, but I'm a buyer on any dip in gold. And I think it performs in geopolitical crisis, which is not going away anytime soon, no matter if there's a truce for a period of time or not. We still have a lot of issues still with around the world. It performs well in massive inflation, which is what we're seeing. And lastly, a currency debasement. So if the Fed were to come in with some round of QE again at some point, forget it. Gold's off the chart. So, you know, trade accordingly, but I'm a big believer here in gold. And listen, some of the other metals have more economic applications for it. Silver is more industrial, right? Then gold is copper is more industrial. So those are a little bit different, but I think gold's about to have its day. And I, I truly believe it's going to go substantially above 2000 in the very near future. I agree with you. And listen, you know, people talk about com- commodities in my world have an end use. And obviously silver does have an end use and aluminum, zinc, nickel, crude oil, natural gas, they all have end use. Gold, look, respectfully, there's real no end use for gold, jewelry notwithstanding. I get it. So it's not a commodity in the true sense of the word, but you know what it is. I mean, where central banks look for security, they, they want to store gold. And what's interesting, and we talked about this at the time, people say to me, how did the crude oil market go to negative $39 a barrel a couple of Aprils ago? I mean, that was obviously something nobody's ever seen before. And the short reason is there was no place to store it. So it was better. It was more cost effective. Think about this, to sell crude at a negative price than it was to try to find a place that didn't exist to store it. That's one side of the equation. Think about the flip side of that equation. And I'm not wearing my tinfoil hat today. I left it upstairs. But what if it's a scenario where people actually ask for delivery of their metal? What happens? You want to see what happened recently? And this is not what happened to the penny, as they say. But look what happened in the nickel market. And we're going to talk about that on Fast Money tonight. And you've talked about it for a while. 
that market we have never seen anything like it we talk about two three standard deviation moves and things is a big deal nickel saw a 30 30 30 standard deviation move so to me that's just the start but i don't want to sort of get bogged down here let's go to sort of the next topic it's sort of this sell everything i mean the whole 60 40 thing i mean that's thrown out the window danny bloomberg wealth so everything market sends 60 40 funds on its worst run in 14 years the classic 60 40 portfolio which by the way i think we could throw that out as they say strategy name for the share of allocated to equities and high-grade debt respectively is down by 10 percent this year i don't even know if that matters anymore i mean is 60 40 thrown out the window danny you speak about this all the time the world's changed a lot this is what makes me scared we talked about at the top of the show here you can't hide in bonds and you can't hide in stocks where do you hide I'll go back to gold for a second. I think it's underweighted as part of the portfolio, but this is what people are grappling with right now. The first time in a long time, again, Fed doesn't have your back. And we know that rates aren't at the level that they should be. What does that feel like when you burn back through the atmosphere, right? And come back in, it's painful. Stock picking has mattered. Stock picking in the last four to five months has mattered. There are stocks out there certainly that you can own. It's just, it's not so much easy to say buy the S&P 500 or sell the S&P 500, or just buy treasuries. I think it's very stock specific. And that is a lost art. This bottom-up fundamental work has been lost because why? ETFs kind of run the show. Passive runs the show. And when you, you've talked about this at length, Guy, when passive controls the inflows, right? It's great on the way in. It's very painful on the way out. So there's plenty of opportunities, both on the long and the short side right now. It's just, I think when people see 60-40, it's a generic, is it just the S&P 500, right? And I think it's something else. So if stockbrokers have gone away from stock picking for years because they stopped getting paid commission on there, right? They stopped getting mutual fund payments like they used to. They got paid to manage. They get a management fee on their ETFs overall, right? And manage on the portfolio. So that's what needs to happen. And that's going to be part of this, I call it burning back through the atmosphere. It's going to be a stock picker's market. I don't want to get too inside baseball here, but you mentioned ETFs, exchange traded funds. But there's something else out there called ETNs. And this is something interesting. Exchange traded notes, nuanced but different. And Barclays had a little bit of a problem here. We can show the slide. I mean, two of their products linked to oil volatility. I don't know. What is it? Just suspend it. I mean, what are we going to do? We're just going to sort of pretend it doesn't exist. This is, again, I mean, I'm not looking to pick on Barclays or any of these things, but this is problematic. Can you speak to this, Danny? Yeah. So just so people out there know, an ETN is exchange traded note versus an ETF, um, electronic traded fund. Those own stocks, ETFs own stocks, ETNs do not. It's an obligation to track the index on the stock. So it's funded with debt. So Barclays, who is the issuer of this debt that basically tries to track the VXX, which is a measure of of VIX futures, and then the oil, which is oil futures, was OIL. It's about a billion dollars in assets combined. So maybe people don't think that's a big deal. But structurally, it broke because they didn't have the capacity any longer. And whether that was because the bank in general, Barclays, turned down kind of the risk volume, so to speak, and called everything in, it was never an exact science. This happened at Credit Suisse years ago with something, the TVIX, which created a lot of pain for a lot of people. Again, ETNs don't own the underlying security. They track it. So it's never going to be matched up directly to its net asset value. And look what happened to that. They suspended trading for a period of time. It was down 50% one day, 30% the next day. And it just got delisted officially in 2020. So again, as credit spreads widen, as rates move higher, all of these products which have existed, and we can go into fixed income ETFs in general also, which you and I have talked about at great length. This all just goes to this fact of 
when money is free and cheap, you can have things like this. And we're seeing the end of the era. So if you look what happened to the VXX in the last day, it went from 25 to 42 this morning, back down to 33. I don't know where it is, you know, right now, but that just shows you that the way that these things are set up aren't structurally sound. And when you get exposed and volatility heats up like this, that could happen, especially in an ETN that tracks volatility. So what's interesting is when they're supposed to work is when they stop working. And Eddie Trevino, this answers your question that you asked on the line, as they say to Amanda, by the way, Eddie, I love your brother, Lee, who famously said in the middle of a lightning storm, held up a one iron and somebody said, him, why are you doing that, Lee? And they said, because not even God can hit a one iron, but that's neither here nor he there. Danny. Guy. He also, one of his greatest quotes is never own anything that eats while you sleep. And he was referring, I think, to horses at the time. But anyway, go on. He was a very, he's a very wise man. Lee. So, yeah. <laughs> Let's yeah. take a look at the S&P chart. Yeah. Because I know you listen, I know you don't like to get all technical and stuff, but obviously the one thing that everybody watches, well, one of the things that everybody watches, the S&P. Now, people will start to talk about the death cross, and that's when the 50-day moving average crosses through the 200-day moving average on the downside, which is what we're seeing here. By the way, we've seen it happen in the NDX. I look at this, and this is lower left to upper right. I mean, the trend was intact for a long time. Trend changed at the end of November. Now, the market continued to rally in December sort of on a seasonality thing. I think we all understand that. But obviously, this trend changed when the Fed did a pivot on their, well, not on their mandates, but on some of their policies. And here we are. I look at this and say, you know what? We've enjoyed longer than a year, year and a half of sort of upper left or lower left to upper right. I think we're in a paradigm shift. And oh, by the way, I use that term. I've been using that term. Goldman Sachs just put out a note using that term. What are your thoughts here on the S&P, Danny? Yeah, I mean, again, uh, you go for a longer term chart on that and you'll see where we're going to go when QE is over and the Fed starts to unwind their balance sheet if they ever do. And that's really all this guy was, you know, just so much liquidity in the market. What 2022 S&P earnings, I think now are just north of $21, maybe we're at around 19 times, I think mm -hmm. still, or above 19 times in this year. I think I don't think anyone believes that those are safe. And I think so that's telling us that the PE, that the earnings probably for the S&P are too high and that there's a some type of slowdown coming. But again, it's a readjustment to what it's like for higher rates. And what does that mean to equity valuations? The higher rates are you use that as a discount stuff back to future value, discounted back to present value. And you come up with a lower number right. when, the, when you're just premium changes, when your risk premium changes. And that's all this is, is a reset. So I fully expect whatever that green line is portending. What is that? 37.50. And this is the CME, yeah. the E-minis traded on the CME, but 37.50 to me is what it's it's a logical place for us to find support. Yeah, for sure. Listen, when the S&P was at 47, 4,800, we had that big rally at the end of the year. I think it was more seasonal than anything until we turned the clock. You know, people say, oh, if it gets to 4,500, I'll buy it. 4,400, I'm going to load up. 4,300, I'll be standing there buying. It's when it actually happens uh, that people have to take count for where we are and what caused that to happen. So Again, I'm not a buyer here, but I'm a buyer of individual stocks that I think may become attractive here and get thrown out with the rest of them. So No, I agree with you there. And it's interesting. I'm, now I'm paraphrasing, but I think Jerome Powell, you know, a year, year and a half ago, basically said about the equity markets, you know, valuations should not be a concern in a zero interest rate environment. Okay, I'll give you that. But, you know, as rates start going higher, then but stands to reason that valuation should be a concern. And you mentioned two things. I mean, in terms of valuation, you have to ask yourself, what's the right multiple in a rising rate environment? I don't know. I think I know. But also the E part of the PE is coming down as well. So 
prior, we had both those numbers going higher. Now we have both those numbers seemingly going lower. So historically, a market that trades around 16 and a half times or thereabouts, I mean, that might be a sort of a landing spot, but it doesn't mean we can't overshoot to the downside. Just something to keep into consideration. And speaking of overshooting, take a look at this crude chart because to me, this is a classic blow off top. Again, everybody will point to Russia, Ukraine. I get it. I happen to think we were going there regardless. It would have taken longer, but we got there and we're giving it back. I'll say this, Danny. I'm curious your thoughts. I thought crude would go to 125. We talked about it on the tape. It basically got there. What we're seeing now is a classic back and fill off a parabolic move. But I don't think, again, my opinion, this is over by any stretch of the imagination. If it's over, it means, you know, things are slowing globally. So we've seen a new kind of COVID lockdown happen in China. I think that's exacerbated this move lower. But if you were to tell me from a supply demand perspective that there's going to be demand destruction, and we got a little bit of a glimpse, right? So in this move in the last 10 days, let's say from the 90 to the 125 level, we were already hearing about consumer confidence dropping, people at the pump, it became a very big deal and it had a direct impact already. So you got a little glimpse of what that could look like. So the other component here, which I think is causing some confusion is its impact on inflation and the numbers, right? Mm -hmm. So it has a direct impact on CPI. There's a formula for every $10 in oil or whatever, 0.1 CPI, et cetera. So people are trying to factor that in at the same time. So you have inflation models moving and it's just a factor of we're going to be living, I think, with extreme volatility for a long time. But if you told me that, that oil is going to go back to the 60 or 70 level for some reason, I 100% would think that means we're in a recession at that point because there's just massive demand destruction. And so geopolitically, I think there was a reason that we did move higher. I think it got exacerbated, I think, just short term, just on people closing out positions, people that were levered to the short side of oil that had to cover. So you got those blow off tops here. But I don't see us moving sustainably lower from here in oil unless we do confirm that the economy is really slowing. No, I think that's an important point. If we were to get down to that $60 level, I think a lot of people will say, well, that's got to be really bullish for equities. And I would submit, yeah, you would think that would be the case, obviously lower input costs. But if we're getting there, we're getting there because something really went wrong on the economic front, not only here, but sort of what's going on around the globe. By the way, not, not that it necessarily matters, but when you combine the Eurozone, we have about 330 million people in this country. I think when you combine those Eurozone nations, about 450 million people, and that has a larger GDP than we have here in the United States. So, you know, if they slow down there, which they clearly are, I mean, we're not going to be impervious to that. Danny, what do they call it when you have a certain style and you drift away from that style? They have this like a, style this drifting. A, oh, style drift. Oh, yeah. silly me. I mean, that yeah. makes perfect sense. You have a style and you drift. Style drift. Well, somebody's doing a little style drift here, brother. And I don't listen. I don't get this guy, this Adam Ant guy or Adam Aaron. I don't know what his name is, but AMC is throwing a lot of beep against the wall and hoping it sticks. They bought a stake. And a gold mining stock, I think the market cap of the company was, I want to say, $65, $70 million. I don't know what's going on here. Maybe you can make heads or tails of this. Maybe when you go see the Godfather 50-year anniversary show this weekend at your Lowe's AMC out there in Long Island, they're going to give you one of those teeny gold bars. Something's going on. I don't get it. Maybe you do. Other creditors let them throw $28 million into a gold miner. There's a connection here with Mudrick. As you know, they they own 40% of this. Hydrocroft or whatever this thing, Highcroft, whatever it's called. And so remember, they were an investor at AMC at the time. So maybe that's where the connection is on this. But I mean, I'm not, listen, not only if he, if he had said, listen, I think our future is better weighted towards gold than it is trying to fill these movie theaters over time. When I, I would have liked that more. This is just 
we think that this is very similar to us and the challenges that we're dealing with. No, it's a completely different business. And so this is a style drift. It's crazy to me. And what is, you know, this gold miner says they're now going to do an ATM offering of potentially $500 million over the next couple of months with B. Riley, who is a broker. B. Riley came out and said, we think this is a potential great opportunity, great investment. Sprott of the Sprott mining business himself personally invested the same amount. So they obviously got together and thought about this. Who knows where this is going to be, but it's a very confusing thing, but it tells me that we're not through. So just to bring it back full circle, how do you know from a behavioral finance perspective when this market's going to bottom? And when Ryan Cohen puts out tweets that short sellers are the equivalent of the bad people in Star Wars or the dumb people in Star Wars, whatever it might be, and people want to pounce and own this stuff, it tells me we're not near the end yet. When Bad Bath & Beyond runs from 17 pre-market to 35 last week on Ryan Cohen taking a stake, it tells me we're not through this yet. Those things, things have to stop going up. Movements on when you see news like this to let me believe we're near the bottom. So, you know, listen, if you're sure, I'm not short AMC, but if you're short AMC, you should be more excited about this now than you were before. And we'll throw an AMC chart up. We have a question from one of our audience members. And by the way, I love Drew Barrymore in Star Wars, some of her best early work, but here's a chart of AMC. Look, I mean, I, I, there's still a faction of people out there. I think that incorrectly believe, Danny, that as long as they hold the stock, by definition, it can't go lower. I mean, there's that mindset out there and it's just not factually correct. And I'm worried for some of those people because you have the CEO selling stock every opportunity that he has and all these, you know, apes, gorillas, Wall Street bets, Reddit people, to a large extent, they're left, left holding the bag. And my real concern is a few people have done extraordinarily well here, but the masses are going to get, you know, they're getting taken out to the woodshed. I mean, if you use the $28 million to pay down debt, right, or to get some buyback approval for his stock, to me, as an AMC holder, that would have been a much better use of capital. But yeah, it's hard to convince people when it becomes a religion versus looking at it independently on a fundamental basis. It's hard. And I've been talking to a lot of those people and they're good people. They just don't seem to understand that aspect and that they're being taken advantage of here. So Again, we're going to see this play out over time. It's not just AMC. It's several other kind of meme stocks that are out there. Save that for another show. But yeah, there's still a lot of pain, I think, to come here, Guy. Before we 5,000, we have another question quickly, Danny. You mentioned you know, you're gonna, you have to pick individual names. Walmart's been a name you've liked for a myriad of different reasons. What are your thoughts here in Walmart? Yeah, listen, I mean, as the consumer faces headwinds, the consumers that weren't shopping in Walmart drop down. And that has a defensive aspect to it and a growth aspect to it. They sell groceries now more than they ever did before at lower prices in many of the stores. So that will attract more people. Um, and listen, minimum wage continues to go up. So the Walmart customer is not necessarily the one that own the stock market, right? We think about the wealth effect. It's not. So I think they're doing well. They're making huge progress in e-commerce, taking market share, starting to get market share from Amazon in that area. And it's a nice inflationary hedge, right? They, they, they squeeze their suppliers, right? So they're able to maintain margin. And lastly, it's, you know, the dollar strength bodes well for them because they buy a lot of product from outside the U.S. and bring it back. And they're mostly sell in the U.S. So anyway, it's a, I think it's a good defensive story. You know, I mentioned it six to eight weeks ago. Dan asked me, he goes, what's your favorite name on the long side? I said, well, a name that's not going to hurt you is Walmart. Well, it's hard to pitch a name like that so you can preserve cash. It has a nice dividend. They got a nice buyback in place. So overall, I do like it. I think it's a safe place to hype now. Danny, I want you to thank on behalf of me, Jack Nicholson and Louise Fletcher for allowing you to use that room there. For you folks that understand that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But that's today's market call. I want to thank our sponsors, CME Group, and of course, Open Exchange. And if you dug this, I did. 
Tune in tomorrow, 1 p.m. Eastern time. We're breaking down the charts with CBW, who joined me yesterday. Danny, thanks for jumping in. I love being on with you. Your thoughtfulness should always be listened to, and I mess around with the big chill, big short, but I know for a fact I'm going to my local blockbuster this weekend and renting that SOB. Check out On The Tape because Danny is featured every week. Drops on Fridays at your favorite podcast store. Mine is down the street. Later, people.